Well, I'd like to begin the message this morning with a confession. Uh, a confession of something that I have been guilty of. When I was a teenager, I would spend way too much time focused on my appearance. I would spend an excessive amount of time styling my hair. Some of you may be thinking, what hair? (laughs) Believe it or not, I used to have a good amount of hair. And I would spend a ton of time making sure that every strand was in its proper place. Today I am convinced, for some reason, that the Lord does not want me to spend so much time grooming my hair. And I used to spend a great deal of time thinking through what to wear, what to put on my body. I would put on an outfit only to take it off and to try another outfit and so on until I was pleased with the outfit that I was wearing. As I look back, I'm reminded of how important it was to me what I looked like and what I chose to put on. The topic of putting on is eternally important, but not the vanity-filled putting on of clothes to look good to others. The putting on that I am talking about this morning is the putting on of Christ. In this sense, how we dress is extremely important, especially in light of so much that has happened over this past year. The church, let alone our nation, has been hit with challenges that at times seems to be tearing us apart. And in times like this, we need a reminder to put on Christ. And we need to know what, what that looks like and how to do it. Brothers and sisters, we are being called in our passage today to put on Christ. And so I am entitling the message, Put on Christ. I'm going to frame the message around three critical components linked to Paul's command to put on, to put on Christ that are aimed at our spiritual growth and the experience of the perfect bond of unity. I would like to begin with the reading of the passage, Colossians 3.12 through 14. I'm reading from the NASB version, Colossians 3:12 to 14. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Well, let us begin with the first critical component linked to Paul's command to put on that is aimed at our spiritual growth and the experience of the perfect bond of unity. Component number one, Paul's command arises from a desire to see his readers grow and is preceded by propositional or positional truth. Paul's command arises from a desire to see his readers grow and it is preceded by propositional truth. Verse 12 begins and... So, and so, Paul is building upon a line of thought. Let us begin with the understanding that 
the imprisoned Paul is impassioned for the sanctification of his Colossian readers. He wants so much for them to grow. We see this as Paul begins his letter with the salutation in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, grace to you, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And Paul's desire for their growth is proved by his unceasing prayers. In Colossians 1.3, Paul communicates that he is praying always, praying always for the Colossians. And Paul offers encouraging words designed to promote growth when he affirms in verse 6 of chapter 1 that the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing in the lives of his readers. The power of the gospel is on display in their lives and Paul wants to affirm that to encourage them in their growth. Uh, Paul's desire for his readers to grow is proved by the content of his prayers for them. In Colossians 1, 9 through 10, Paul declares, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. And Paul's desire for their growth fuels the fire of his gospel proclamation to them. In verse 13, he reminds them that God has rescued us. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he has transferred us uh, to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Paul then elaborates on Christ. He, he puts our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verses 15 to 22, we see this and Paul tells us that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn. He is the preeminent one of all creation. He is the creator of all things. He existed from eternity past and Christ holds all things together. In addition, Christ is the head of the church. And Paul describes him as the firstborn from the dead, the first raised bodily from the dead, never to die again. And Christ has reconciled us to himself and he has brought peace between us and an infinitely holy God through his blood shed on a cross for us. We are reconciled to God through uh, his death with the goal of presenting us to Almighty God, Paul says, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Paul's ministry power and effectiveness flows from Christ-centeredness. He knows that Christ is the key to growth and thus he declares, we proclaim Christ. We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man that we might, with all wisdom, uh, that we might present every man complete in Christ. And Paul Continues, he says, for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. Christ is the key to completeness, and Paul knows it. In fact, later in Colossians 2.10, Paul proclaims, in him, in Christ, we have been made complete. And Paul's desire for the growth of his readers is underscored by the fact that he willingly suffers and sacrifices for the sanctification of the saints as we see in Colossians 1, 24 and chapter 2, verse 1. Paul greatly desires the growth of his readers and he uh, emphasizes their identity with and focus on Christ. Believers have been raised up with Christ and therefore they are to keep seeking him. Colossians 3.1 Believers have died with Christ and therefore are to set their minds on him. 
Colossians 2.20 as well as 3, 2 through 3. And so what we observe throughout Colossians is Paul's desire to buttress their faith, to shape their thoughts, and for them to know and to seek Christ. This is the foundation upon which Paul then commands his readers to take off the clothing of sin in their lives. Colossians 3.8, Paul commands his readers, uh, put them all aside. Put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. And thus Paul desires the growth of his readers. This cannot be contested. And he seeks to settle them in their position in Christ on his way to addressing their behavior. They are to put off evil in every form, including the evil that divides and undermines their unity in Christ. Clearly, a big part of what Paul has in mind is spiritual growth that is reflected in unity among the people of God. The gospel undermines and it overpowers the divide between people. And at the end of the day, only the gospel has the power to do that in full effect. Through the power of the gospel, ethnic and racial and economic divides disappear. In Christ, we are one. And such a oneness must be embraced and it must be exhibited among the people of God. This also is part of the growth that Paul goes after. And these are the thoughts to keep in mind when we read, and so, and so, and so links what has been said with what Paul is about to say. And what we discover is an emphasis once again on propositional and positional truth. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Here Paul asserts three truths for all believers to embrace. Believers have been chosen. The King James Version uses the word elect. And you'll also you will also note to whom the choice belongs. Paul declares, chosen of God. The Bible everywhere teaches that God is sovereign over salvation. In Romans 11:7, where the context is salvation by grace, Paul proclaims, those who were chosen obtained it. They obtained salvation and the rest were hardened. 1 Corinthians 1.27, Paul says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. We who believe in Christ are the foolish and weak things of the world who have been chosen by God. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we read, but we should always give thanks to God for you. This is Paul writing. Always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because, why? Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Here again, we see that God is the one doing the choosing. In 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul proclaims, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Paul's willingness to suffer and sacrifice is marked by a desire to minister to those chosen of God. In these verses, Paul 
consistently asserts God's sovereignty in salvation. God is the one responsible for the choosing. He will not go back on his decision. And Paul in our passage today tells the Colossians that they are chosen of God. Chosen of God. To be chosen of God is affirming. It is comforting. And Paul wants to assure them of their standing before God. They have been chosen. Every day, you and I are faced with choices. This past week, our nation exercised the choice of who our next president would be. We voted to elect a president. May I remind you today that the most important choice involves God's decision in eternity past to choose you and to send his son to die on the cross for you and by his spirit to draw you to himself by his irresistible grace. It was God's decision to save you. He caused you to be born again into a living hope that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. And God, through his word today, is reminding you who have repented of sin and received Christ by faith that you are chosen of God. And rest assured that there are no mistakes in God's election. And perhaps you are like me and from time to time you question God's choice of you. Why me? Why would God see fit to save me? What have I done to deserve so great a salvation? At the heart of such questions is the understanding that we do not deserve to be saved. We, we do not deserve to be chosen. But out of the overflow of mercy, God chose us and he saw fit to save us. Let this doctrine of God's sovereignty over your salvation encourage you and let your heart find rest in the belief that you are chosen of God. And to further encourage the Colossians regarding their position in Christ, Paul describes them as holy. And to be holy is to be set apart. In choosing the Colossians, God has set them apart. And this implies a marked difference between two categories of people, the saved and the unsaved, the children of light and the children of Darkness, believers, non-believers, children of God and children of the devil. There is a line of demarcation between the two and the Colossians are to see themselves as having been set apart. They are holy. What about you? Do you see yourself as chosen of God and set apart? And does this make a difference in your life. This description of the Colossians as holy dovetails also, I believe, with the doctrine of imputed righteousness. The Colossians have been clothed in the righteousness of God. So to be holy carries the, two, the twofold idea of being set apart as well as being pure, unstained, without blemish, righteous. Our holiness is not intrinsic. It is imputed. It is based on the gospel. Our Lord took upon himself our sin when dying on the cross. And we who are in Christ have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Positionally, we are holy, righteous, and without blame. Almighty God looks down from on high and he sees us clothed in the garments of Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are holy. Do you believe that? Your holiness is imputed. Do you believe that? And this is not to say that you or I do not struggle with the remnants of indwelling sin. Of course we do. 
but our standing before God is secure. From the divine perspective, we are holy, set apart, and we are clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul does not stop with describing his readers as chosen and set apart. Paul also describes his readers as beloved. Beloved. He wants to bring to their attention that they are in fact loved by Almighty God. And such a reflection of being loved by God should always bring us to the foot of the cross where we behold the immeasurable love of God poured out upon us by the bloody sacrifice of His beloved Son. The Bible tells us, right, that God so loved the world that He gave His Son, His only begotten Son, that, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Paul wants his readers to be convinced of and settled in the fact that they are loved by God. Friends, if you have repented of your sin and if you have embraced Christ alone for your salvation, then what Paul is saying here applies directly to you. You are chosen of God. You are holy and you are beloved. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you see yourself in this way? This is what the Bible says. Paul tells his readers that they are chosen, holy, and beloved in order to encourage growth and transformation in their lives. Remember, Paul's passion for his readers is their growth. He wants their lives to be transformed by the power of the gospel and the truth of who they are in Christ. And so Paul uh, transitions in our passage now from position to practice, from doctrine to duty. And the language he employs is that of getting dressed. He has already commanded his readers to put off sin. He informs them of the fact that the distinctions that divide are destroyed and they are in Christ Holy, righteous, beloved, chosen. They are in Christ and must now clothe themselves in the qualities of Christ. And this brings us to the second critical component linked to Paul's command to put on that is aimed at our spiritual growth and the experience of the perfect bond of unity. Component number two, uh, Paul's command is multifaceted. Paul's command is multifaceted. Uh, another way of saying this is that um, the command that he gives is followed up by many descriptions of what that looks like. Right? Put on. And then he's going to say, put on and, and a number of descriptions of those things that we are to put on. And so in that sense, that is what I mean by saying that his command is multifaceted. Believer, believers in our passage are commanded to put on. And this command is at the heart of our passage. It means to envelop in, clothe with. In 3.10, Paul says, we have put on the new man who is being renewed. Paul is now commanding his readers to put on the new man and will provide a very helpful description of what that new man is to look like, how that new man is to behave, what the attitudes of that new man should be. And one commentator says that to put on means to become so possessed of the mind of Christ as in thought, feeling, and action to resemble Christ and as it were, reproduce the life he lived. I love that. Let me read it again. Uh, to put on means to become so possessed of the mind of Christ as in thought, feeling, and action to resemble Christ and, as it were, reproduce the life that Christ lived. Paul's burden for the Colossians is to obey the command to put on and, as a result, be transformed. As we continue in the text, we read that believers are commanded to put on a heart. Put on a heart. Uh, the word in the Greek is splakna, 
And it speaks of inward parts, entrails or bowels. Acts 1.18 tells us that the splachna of Judas Iscariot burst out of him. Hung, dropped down to the ground, dead, burst open. Splachna. It was believed uh, that this was the seat of one's emotions. It is thus a very emotive term and it denotes deep feeling. The transformation Paul seeks is rooted in the inner man. He seeks an inside-out transformation in the lives of his readers. In 2 Corinthians 7.15, Paul mentions Titus to his readers and he declares, His affection, his splachna abounds all the more to you. Paul wants his readers to know how strongly Titus felt for his beloved Corinthians. Philippians 1.8, Paul declares to his readers, God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection, with the splachna of Christ Jesus. From this we gather that such an affection comes from the Lord. It is the affection of Christ Jesus. And such a heart is linked to action. For example, Matthew 20.34, we read, Moved with compassion. The verb form of the word, right? Splachna. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and they followed him. And in Mark 1.41 we read, and moved with compassion. There's that word again. He stretched out his hand, touched him and he said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And the leper was cleansed. And here we see that the seed of emotion is marked by compassion. In fact, such a seed of emotion is immediately linked to compassion in our passage. Uh, what are we to put on? We're to put on a heart. We're to put on a splatna. But what kind of heart? Uh, what should mark our heart? And Paul tells us we are to put on a heart of compassion. Believers are commanded to put on a heart of compassion. The Greek word is oiktermos and it conveys the idea compassion, pity, mercy. The whole phrase Heart of compassion is translated in the King James as bowels of mercy and expresses a feeling of sympathy for the needs and sufferings of others. We are to have a heart of compassion for others. When we see others in need, we should feel and be moved with compassion. Again, I submit this speaks of a deep and emotionally charged, emotional sense of compassion This is a challenge to me, this passage, this verse. Along with all of these descriptions that the Apostle provides us with. How often am I moved with compassion when I witness the needs of others? Am I willing to respond immediately by going out of my way to meet the needs of others? Do I take action when I know that others are hurting? Am I moved with compassion? And sad to say, I would admit that I am not as often as I ought to be. And God rebukes me in this passage. He convicts me in this passage. He corrects me in this passage. And he shows me that I fall short and I am in need of his gospel grace. God help me. Now, we can come up with countless situations where it is appropriate to be moved with compassion. When Jesus saw the multitudes, he felt compassion for them. Why? Because they were distressed, downcast like sheep without a shepherd. He was concerned about their spiritual needs. He felt compassion for them. As a result, in Matthew 14, 14, we read that when Jesus went to shore, he saw a great multitude, felt compassion for them, and he healed their sick. He saw that they were physically ill, and he had to do something about it. He moved in the direction of rendering them healing in their lives. In Matthew 15, 32, Jesus feels compassion for the multitude because they have nothing to eat. And so he wants to give them bread to eat, fish to eat. 
And they were hungry and he wanted to meet that need that they had. In Matthew 20, 34, he's moved with compassion, touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and they followed him. In Mark 1, 41, we read about how Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, touched the leper, cleansed him. And we know that our Lord's greatest demonstration of compassion was when he took our place on the cross and he died for us so that our every sin would be atoned for and we would be adopted to be sons of God. Jesus knew our need and voluntarily laid down his life for us so that our many sins would be forgiven. The compassion with which we have been showered is the very compassion that we are to clothe ourselves in so that uh, such a compassion might be displayed to others in our lives. And in our passage today, we are commanded to put on a heart of compassion. Believers are also commanded to put on a heart of kindness. Put on a heart of kindness. This is the word used for one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. Thus we are dependent upon the Lord by His Spirit to manifest kindness in and through us. And we are to show forth a gentle and gracious disposition. This includes a ready disposition to listen and to respond to others. The Bible teaches the kindness of God. Hear what Paul says in Romans 2.4. He said, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance If God is kind and His kindness leads us to repentance, it follows that we do well to relate to others with kindness. Your being kind may result in a lost person repenting of his sin and coming to faith in Christ. Your being kind may result in the repentance of another believer in Christ. Gospel kindness is a useful tool for chipping away at the rough edges of others that you know, even as gospel kindness is a useful tool in chipping away at our own rough edges. And kindness is not to be undermined by suffering. In 2 Corinthians 6, 4 to 6, the Apostle Paul declares, in everything... Now listen to this. Listen to what Paul... Paul says regarding himself and situations he has faced in his life. He says, In everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in affliction, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. Then Paul goes on to say, In purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness in the Holy Spirit and genuine love. The situations and circumstances of life ought not to undermine the kindness that we are to be clothing ourselves in. Paul and his ministry companions are believers who manifest kindness while suffering. Paul's kindness is rooted in the gospel. He knew Jesus to be kind to him and in turn he sought to be kind to others. Paul's kindness was shaped by witnessing gospel kindness in others. One person that comes to mind is Stephen. Paul witnessed Stephen's martyrdom, and there is little doubt that he was impacted. What about you? Do you put on a heart of compassion and kindness when wronged by others? Do you see their sins against you as reason for and opportunity to do good and to pray for them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commands us to pray for those who persecute us. We are to love our enemies. How much more ought we to show such kindness to those who are not our enemies? Let us now turn to the next description of what we as believers are commanded to put on. Believers are commanded to put on a heart of humility, a heart of humility. We are to have humbleness of mind, a 
a, a humble opinion of oneself, a deep sense of our own moral littleness, lowliness of mind. We're not to think of ourselves as better than others. Rather, we esteem others as more important than ourselves. Like Paul, we see ourselves as the chief of sinners, but we don't wallow in our sin. We don't despair. This would be a form of pride. We acknowledge that our sin has been atoned for through the blood of Jesus, and we hope and we trust in Christ alone. And we do not just hope for ourselves, but we hope for others as well. The humble person knows that no one, no one is beyond the reach of Christ. The humble are so overwhelmed by God's grace in their own lives that they know with certainty that God's grace can make a difference without question in the life of another person, no matter how sinful they may be. Friends, we can spend forever wrapping our hearts and minds around the biblical teaching of humility, there is much to be said. Of course, humility is the opposite of pride. The proud person is self-absorbed, thinks highly of self, has an easy time talking down about others. But the humble person thinks much about others and can often be found speaking well of others. Jesus describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. Matthew eleven twenty nine. James, the half-brother of Jesus, declares that God gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. Uh, Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 5, 5. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so humility and the experience of God's grace go hand in hand. In commanding the Colossians to put on a heart of humility, Paul underscores his desire for his readers to experience the grace of God in their lives. I believe in your notes there is a list, an excellent list by Dr. Stuart Scott of the manifestations of humility. I'm going to make an executive decision here to skip over that part, but I encourage you to take some time and to take a look at that list in order to help you to discern what some of the manifestations of humility are. Well, let us continue then with Paul's descriptions of what believers are commanded to put on. Believers are commanded to put on a heart of gentleness. This is another fruit of the Spirit and it denotes meekness. One commentator says that such gentleness, such meekness is an inwrought grace of the soul, that temper of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. It is the humble heart which is also the meek and which as such does not fight against God and more or less struggle and contend with Him. This meekness, however, being first First of all, a meekness before God is also such in the face of men, even of evil men, out of a sense that these, with the insults and injuries which they may inflict, are permitted and employed by God for the chastening and purification of his elect, or purifying of his elect. So what might people say of you? Are you gentle? Are you meek? Do you accept God's dealings? And do you display a belief that God causes all things to work together for the good? Are you gentle when circumstances don't go your way? Have you displayed gentleness in the days leading to and following the election? Do you behave in a gentle way when slighted by others? Do you embrace the sins of others against you as God's chiseling instruments for your own sanctification. And our text continues. Believers are commanded to put on a heart of patience. The word makrothemia, uh, that's the word in the Greek. It can also be understood as long-suffering. Long-suffering, patience. This word speaks of the man who 
having to do with injurious persons, does not suffer himself easily to be provoked by them or to blaze up in anger. The patient man is able to put up underneath the insults, the accusations, uh, and, and he doesn't blow up in anger as a result. It just doesn't happen. This is a sign. This is a mark of patience. The word expresses patience under the ill treatment of others. It includes putting up with people for a long time. For a long time. Are you patient with the faults and sins of your spouse and your children and your parents, your fellow believer, and even with those who have hurt you seriously? Well, Paul continues in the passage, believers are commanded to bear with one another. Verse 13 reads, bearing with one another. We are commanded to bear with one another. And this speaks of enduring the offenses of other people. When wronged by others, we must endure. We must not allow the sins of others against us to prevent us from bearing with their faults. It is often so easy to become irritated with others when they sin or fail to live up to our expectations. But Paul here tells us that we must bear with one another. And he goes on, believers are commanded to forgive one another. The verse reads, forgiving, forgiving each other. This participle carries the force of a command. Implied in the command is the fact that we will be sinned against even by faults within the body. And so what are we to do when this happens? Throughout this passage, we have been commanded to put on Christ-like qualities. Here we are commanded to forgive. And the idea is that we bear with others. Hopefully those we bear up with, will, they'll see they're wrong. They'll come to us and they'll seek forgiveness from us. What are we to do when that happens? Forgive. And some here raise the question, um, can we forgive when our forgiveness is not sought? Isn't it necessary for the person who has sinned against me to seek my forgiveness before I am able to give it? Well, these are good questions, and my response is this. We should already and always be dispositioned to forgiveness even before our forgiveness is sought. We do not have to wait for one to seek our forgiveness before we forgive such a person from the heart. In fact, to hold on to unforgiveness simply because our forgiveness has not been sought, will hinder our own spiritual growth. When someone finally comes to us seeking our forgiveness, we should be able to say, I do forgive you. In fact, I forgave you a long time ago. And Paul continues his line of thought with these words, whoever, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Paul engages in the ministry of reconciliation. He is seeking to be a peacemaker. He desires unity in the body. And he knows that forgiveness is necessary. Forgiveness is not an option. Those who have been forgiven will forgive the Bible teaches, and Paul has the entire Colossian church in mind with the address, whoever, whoever has a cause for offense against anyone must put on forgiveness. Is there anyone here who has yet to forgive someone who has sinned against them? Is there anyone? God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, would say to you this morning that you must put on forgiveness. You must forgive their sins against you even as your many sins have been forgiven by God. And the forgiveness we are to extend is the same forgiveness that we have received from the Lord. Here Paul takes us to the foot of the cross and he points us to the Lord Jesus Christ once again who forgave us fully and freely. There at the cross the Lord prayed for our forgiveness and purchased our forgiveness through his bloody sacrifice on the cross. There at the cross our every sin, every sin, thought, word, deed was atoned for. In him 
the Bible says, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Our every sin is met with forgiveness at the foot of the cross. When we wrap our minds around the holiness of Almighty God and the infinite number of our own sins, we are guilty of sins of omission and sins of commission. Uh, We have failed to do what we should do. We have not done what we ought to have done. Our passage commands us with descriptions of what we are to put on And if we are honest with ourselves, every single one of us would admit that we have failed at times to dress appropriately. Yet in Christ, our many sins are forgiven and we are commanded to forgive just as the Lord forgave us. The fire for forgiveness is fueled by the forgiveness of Christ to us. Friends, is there anyone that you need to forgive? What person is pictured in your mind when you sense the Spirit calling you to forgive? If we have learned anything about our nation this year, we have learned that the struggle to forgive runs deep. But this passage commands us who are Christ followers that forgiveness is never an option. We must always forgive every single time, every single person. And Paul's command to put on can be summarized in a number of ways. We're commanded to put on the new man. Paul refers to this new man in 310. Paul's detailed descriptions can be understood as descriptions of the new man that we are to put on. And we could also summarize what Paul is commanding us as a command to put on Christ. Put on Christ. Every description serves as a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to put on Christ. But in our passage, Paul directs us to his own summary statement of what he wants for his readers. And this brings us to the third critical component linked to Paul's command to put on that is aimed at our spiritual growth and the experience of the perfect bond of unity. Component number three. Paul's command culminates in a love that serves as the perfect bond of unity among believers. Paul's command culminates in a love that serves as the perfect bond of unity among believers. Verse 14, he says, And beyond all these things, put on love, which is... The perfect bond of unity. Paul has unpacked the details regarding what we are commanded to put on. And now Paul provides a summary statement. At the end of the day, it all boils down to love. The love of God must manifest in our love for people. Every description of what we are to put on culminates in the command To put on love. This really is Christianity in a nutshell. Christianity 101. God loves us. We love God back. And the love of God freely flows through us onto others. Love God. Love people. And this love, this agape love, Paul tells us is the perfect bond of unity. The perfect bond of unity. And this is ultimately what Paul envisions for the Colossian church. Back in verses 10 through 11, Paul declares, We are being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And then he describes such a renewal as a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek, Jew, circumcised, barbarians, giving, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. He is envisioning unity within the body of Christ. And Paul seeks to accomplish such a unity with a presentation of, of declaratives followed by imperatives. He addresses the believer's position Prior to the believer's practice, uh, we must embrace gospel truth as well as the declarations of the gospel over our lives. And then we must live in light of such truths. We are to put on the new man, to put on Christ, to dress ourselves in the love of Christ with an understanding that such a love serves as the perfect bond of unity. 
brothers and sisters, being a Republican is not the perfect bond of unity. Being a Democrat is not the perfect bond of unity. There is a perfect bond of unity that transcends any earthly party affiliation. And that bond of unity, I believe, Paul tells us, is the love of Christ. And without question, Paul's desire for the church is to be super glued together by and with the love of Christ. Such a bond has been under attack over the course of this year. We must not allow the bond to be broken. We cannot allow the bond through our own sin to be broken. As elders, we have labored over many decisions that have been made over the past several months. We have prayed. We have lost sleep. Our stomachs, our splatna, our bowels have churned. We have wept. We have thought deeply about the matters that have faced us as a church. We have not always been on the exact same page every step of the way. We have wrestled through our differing perspectives, but we have never compromised the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have never compromised our mutual love and respect for one another. We know, we know that our body has been through a difficult season. And this season has been difficult for us as well. We know that we must give an account for how we have led God's precious cornerstone congregation and we have sought to honor that stewardship. We have listened as well to our people and your cares and concerns are our cares and our concerns. And even as we have sought to put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, we see that the Cornerstone people have followed suit as well. We marvel at the fact that despite the devil's attacks and his efforts to sow discord and division, that the body of Cornerstone is weathering the storm by putting on love, which is the perfect bond of of unity. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all of these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity.